Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 29th of March, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson from the Netherlands, bringing us Eastern approaches, of course, and uh, Debbie Evans, our very own nursing correspondent. Uh, well, we're going to get straight on with uh, artificial intelligence. And the government has uh, published its artificial intelligence white paper. Uh, so let's just have a look at what they're saying about it. Uh, this sets out, they say, a new approach to regulating artificial intelligence to build public trust in cutting edge technologies. Uh, so trust is what it's all about. We'll help unleash the benefits, they say, of AI, one of the five technologies of tomorrow, uh, which already contributes 3.7 billion pounds to the UK economy. Uh, and this follows uh, a new expert task force uh, to build the UK's capabilities and foundation models, including large language models like ChatGPT uh, and £2 million for Sandbox trial to help businesses test AI rules uh, before getting to market. Um, so let's just have a look uh, at a little bit of a video. Um, this is Michelle Donnellan, um, and uh, well, she's speaking to somebody from the AI industry. Safety, transparency and fairness are three of the key principles of our new approach to regulating artificial intelligence. The new AI white paper will create the right environment for AI to flourish in the UK. I'm here with Lila, COO at DeepMind, a UK founded company at the very forefront of AI research. And what really excites you about the future of AI here in the UK? Can we? Uh apply the AI to better understand diseases uh, so that we can come up with cures in a real-time way. Um, also, can we do things like um, unlock potential to help address the climate crisis? In order for us to really capture the value and for AI to reach its potential, it's going to require trust. And to achieve that trust, we're going to need government, regulators, and industry all working together. Okay, so... so yeah, look, well, let, let, let me just run through this first. So, so let's let's bring the, the, the key points here uh, on screen, if we can. So the first one is, it's all about safety, security, and robustness. Uh, and they say that applications of AI should function in a secure, safe, and robust way where risks are carefully managed. Uh, they say transparency and explainability. Uh, so this means that organizations developing and deploying AI should be able to communicate when and how it's used and explain a system's decision-making process in an appropriate level of detail that matches the risks posed by the uh, use of AI. Uh, there, it's it's going to make sure everything's fair uh, because uh, AI should be used in a way which is, complies with the UK's existing laws, for example, with the Equality Act 2010 or UK GDPR and must not discriminate against individuals or create unfair commercial outcomes. Uh, the fourth one of the five is accountability and governance. And they're saying that measures are needed to ensure that there is appropriate oversight of the way AI is being used and clear accountability for the outcomes. Uh, and uh, contestability and redress is the fifth one. So people need to have clear routes to dispute harmful outcomes or decisions generated by AI. So uh, in the little video clip there, of course, we heard uh, the, CEO, uh, the CEO of uh, DeepMind saying, uh, you know, it's all about medicines, for example, climate change, uh, getting uh, medicines produced in real time. Um, but at the end, she said that, of course, this would require a partnership between government, the regulator and the industry. And so this is what I'm saying this white paper does, uh, because this effectively 
This is the MHRA model of regulation. Let's brand it the MHRA model of regulation, a revolving door regime staffed by industry insiders who move from the regulator to the private sector or from the regulator to government, vice versa, uh, supported by an unquestioning corporate media. Um, Debbie, that's what I'm. That's how I'm framing it. Uh, do you th agree with that? Do you think that's a reasonable way to to uh, describe what's going on? Yes, I 100%. I mean, I can't add anything to that, except for when we talk about deep mind, isn't that taking us back to Professor Hannah Fry? Isn't she deep mind? Or is that a different deep mind? But I completely agree with everything that you say, Mike. Nothing to add. Yeah, well, I, I, the more they reassure us about fairness, that's always a good word. It's not fair. Uh, the more I'm suspicious about what they're doing. But I did have to smile at the uh, British company with a very strong American accents there. So I think, yeah, we need to have a little look into which deep mind it is and is there a connection between them, which proves your point because there's uh, no transparency. Indeed. Uh, so, Alex, let's uh, let's let everybody know about an article, related article on the UK Column website at the moment. It's a full transcript, actually, uh, which is we don't do very often, but we have on this case. Uh, I should forewarn people that pneumatic drilling is going on in my street, so please don't complain if you hear it. I'm, it's out of my control. But uh, it's called Where There's No Will, There's No Way. You can listen to it, as with all of our video uploads, as a SoundCloud item by going to soundcloud.com slash UK column. You can read the transcript on the website. You can watch the video that's embedded there. And these are two world-class thinkers on AI, Dr. Uh, Jobst Landgraber on the left of the image and uh, Barry, Barry White, a professor on the right, who is, uh, they're both multidisciplinary. They've gone from philosophy to neuroscience between them and uh, a number of other scientists along the way. They've been thinking about this for decades. They're not afraid to call scams scams, for one thing. Uh, the reason I've captioned or uh, entitled the interview, Where There's No Will, There's No Way, is that there's only one part of a human character which is replicated in artificial intelligence, namely the mind, as in deep mind. The other two parts, which have been known since the ancient Greeks and before as being equally important in the way we are created and function, is feelings, such as there must be justice and there must be fairness, and I want the world to be a better place, I want people to thrive. Those two, by definition, are absent because it's artificial intelligence, not artificial character or artificial people. There's a lot of detail in this interview, but I think that the key, that the bedrock of the, of the bedrock of it all is this uh, not very commonly heard principle of ergodicity. That is, you cannot program a machine, a model, to deal with human bodies or the weather. We heard there about unlocking, unlocking potential to tackle climate change. That, that vacuous wording bothers me more than the American accent, frankly. Uh, you cannot do these things because the weather and humans and animals are completely unpredictable by our brains and our mathematical models. We cannot put them into computers because we don't know what's going on there. Um, Alex, just a quick correction. Uh, Barry Smith, I think, is his name. Did I get the surname wrong? I do yes. apologise, yes. It's Professor Barry Smith, who's at Buffalo, New York. Brilliant. Thank you. OK, Debbie? Well, this yeah, this leads into Debbie. And you, you came across this interesting um, little question from a member of the public, which uh, draws us nicely into more subjects around, I suppose, control of us all. What have you got, Debbie? Oh, I'd just like to say well done, Stephanie. Um, Stephanie called in. I don't know who Stephanie is. But Stephanie called in to Jeremy Vine this morning 
and put him on the spot. And it's very interesting. Listen carefully to Jeremy Vine's last remark. I think he mentions setting on fire or something. But have a listen to how Stephanie challenges Jeremy Vine and his guest panellists when he she starts to mention the World Economic Forum. Have a look at this. Stephanie in Harbour, hi. Hello. What do you want to say? Sorry, I might get a little bit nervous. Don't you worry, uh, you've, got, you've got plenty of time. I absolutely agree with the gentleman before. The majority of people, for one, don't want them. The councils are bringing them in without, from what I perceive, I suppose they have a legal right. They've probably put it in somehow. Also, isn't this so that we have zero carbon emissions? Uh, yeah, well, yes, well, we just heard Sam saying that the cars go elsewhere. Yeah, well, if they're trying to get rid of the carbon emissions, don't we need carbon dioxide for things to grow? Carbon dioxide. Uh, OK, hang on a minute. Let's let's do the basic science here. So, so uh, help us out I've, I've here. Been, I've been hearing a lot about it, and it's just it seems in the long run it's going to cause a hell of a lot more harm than good. I don't, I don't think that all the plants in the world, there aren't enough plants in the world to soak up all the human emitted carbon. That's the issue, and it's the excess that is causing the problem from probably going back to the industrial revolution and all that stephanie i don't but do you think we should we need to have a bit of carbon emission to help the planet i think that we need to have a little bit of the people having a right in saying what goes on um does the country really want a revolution the media is not advertising it but france germany everywhere is doing it worse than what we're doing. A lot of people think we're think, ramping it up enough. Are you one of the people who thinks that the that the low traffic filters are part of some secret big plan to sort of reset the world? It's the beginning of it, isn't it? You've only got to go into Agenda 2030, read all the information on that, listen to the World Economic Forum, and you'll see exactly what they're up to. Right. Mm. There we are. Oh. Mm. Okay, don't... Yeah, thank you, Stephanie. Don't set fire to anything. Uh, thanks for your calls. After the break... Story... Awkward. Any comments? Well, fascinating to watch Jeremy Vine go into a cognitive dissonant meltdown, I think, is what occurred with him, because initially he was trying to work out, mm, is what is this? So, yeah, it shows the pathetic state the minds are of, of these broadcasters. Well, what he wanted to do, Debbie was, uh, I mean, the, the caller was nervous and perhaps didn't express herself quite as clearly as she wanted to. But the point is that, that he immediately wanted to put her into a little yeah. box, categorize her as a World Economic Forum Great Reset conspiracy theorist, because that means he doesn't have to deal with the actual issues that are being raised. He, he, only, he can just dismiss it as being an, another nutter uh, on his program. Uh, so that would be my thoughts. Yeah, I, I quite agree. But it brought it brings me nicely to, to my segment on something that I hadn't discovered. So forgive me if some of you have heard about this, but I haven't. And I had to go backwards. So I just want to remind everyone to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, because this is this. I had to work backwards. So bear with me, because what I want to do is I want to introduce you to a new gentleman that you might not have met yet. And his name is Patik Gowry. And Mr. Patik Gowry apparently is a superhero. This man is a social entrepreneur. He's, he's only 32. He's from India. 
And we all think we're living in the, or we're going into the fourth industrial revolution, the Great Reset. But no, Mr. Patrick Gowry has got other thoughts and he's invented the fifth industrial revolution. Now, we'll, I'll tell you a bit more about Patrick Gowry in a minute, but suffice to say World Economic Forum. But here's a little short clip of him at a TED talk and you could forgive him. I mean, I've watched on occasion The Apprentice with Alan Sugar and I've watched when the candidates have pitched for a job and they they don't do very well. And you could be forgiven. At first, when I saw this clip, I thought it was somebody playing a prank or somebody pitching for something. But actually, this gentleman turns out to be a lot more important than we might think. So let me introduce you to Patik Gowry. We all want a life of privilege. We all want a life of abundance. We all want a life of luxury. But do we want all of this at the cost of gifting our future generations and children a world where there is lack of gender equality, where there is lack of quality education, where there is lack of clean water and sanitation? I'm sure the answer is no. I've had the privilege of working in two worlds, which I feel have been operating in silos. The first world is a world which we often say the for-profit world, the corporate world, the business world. This world is heavily centered around profits and progress. This world is centered around returning shareholders maximum return, compromising on a lot of factors which I just spoke about. There is another world which I've had the privilege of working in, which is again operating in a second silo. This world we call as the philanthropic world or the non-profit world. This world is heavily centered on purpose and inclusion. Magic can be produced if both these worlds intersect, and this is what I call the fifth industrial revolution. We all know that we are living in the world of the fourth industrial revolution, where we are heavily in, uh, influencing through technology, artificial intelligence, Internet of Things, blockchain, and robotics. Let me just give you an overview of the industrial revolution that have existed in the past. Every time a new source of energy is created, we transition from one industrial revolution to the next, we jump from one orbit to the other, and that is how industrial revolution have progressed in the past. So there we have the fifth industrial revolution. Now, a lot of people are saying they're not quite sure what the fifth industrial revolution is, but having looked deeper into it, it's all about trust. So the fourth industrial revolution is going to be machines and machine learning. But then they decide that nobody trusts machines. So we've got to inject a bit more human into it. So this is where he's going with it. Now, this 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 young man, he was one young world summit he's spoken at. He's founded eight startups in 10 years. And this fifth industrial revolution is meant to work in parallel with the fourth. Um, this is his website. Um, when you you can see there he's widely known as the creator of the fifth industrial revolution and then you'll be able to see his involvement with the wef with the world economic forum and you can just freeze the screen there but you can see that he's part of something called the fifth element group so i just wanted to bring people's attention it's the tip of the iceberg really i'm just trying to 
point people in the direction of this fifth industrial revolution exists, which takes me nicely into, sorry, can, did, you, did you want to comment? I just, sorry, I just, yes, I just wanted to reinforce the point there about trust because that was exactly what uh, Michelle Donnellan began with. So, so that, that is, uh, she is clearly speaking the same language as this young man. Yeah, and, and we've spoken about trust before on UK Column and how important the word trust is, including NHS trust too. Sorry, Brian, did you want to say something? Well, I just, I just wanted to highlight for the audience that in the, uh, in the uh, graphic we've just had on screen, it says Bractic has been recognised as a global shaper by the World Economic Forum and a climate reality leader trained by none other than US Vice President Al Gore. So uh, I think I think we know what this young man is. Uh, well, and it's interesting that he's Indian because, of course, uh, one of the main countries that Common Purpose moved into uh, after the as they expanded out of the UK was India, supported by David Cameron in that enterprise, of course. And his use of uh, the you know this idea of silos and everything being in silos and breaking down silos is very much common a purpose core language. common purpose uh, principle. Yeah. Yes. Well, that leads me on to, I don't know if anybody's heard of Society 5.0. So Society 5.0 is the brainchild of Professor Yuko Harayama. And I do apologise, Alex, I'm sure will correct me on that in a minute. But um, Professor Yuko Harayama, I would have shown a little YouTube clip of, of her, but her, her English is, is absolutely, it's really, really difficult to understand. But what I can tell you is that this is her baby and she's a Professor Emeritus at Tokyo. And she's a former executive of a, a company called Riken, which is basically government state led. Now, Japan are launching this 5.0 agenda, and it's all part of the World Economic Forum. And there's, uh, there's a slide that you can see, uh, World Economic Forum, modern society has reached its limits. Society 5.0 will liberate us. And then if we move on one slide, you'll see that this is all started really from the cabinet office, Japan, launched this back in 2019 when they had the presidency of G20. Now, I just want to show you very quickly a couple of examples. There's two very short YouTubes about Society 5.0 because in my opinion, we people say transhumanism and everybody goes, oh, no, 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 that's a conspiracy theory or it's, a, it's science fiction. But Society 5.0 really is transhumanism and it's rolling in now. So have a look at these couple of little video clips to give you an idea. The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society. Artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new wisdom. Society 5.0 A technology-based, human-centered society. The fourth industrial revolution will raise our standard of living and solve various challenges we face. It will, for example, free us from the stress of driving, allowing us to safely visit anyone, anytime. We will have access to the latest medical advancements at a low cost, no matter where we are. AI and robots will enhance human ability and expand our infinite possibilities, helping us enjoy more fulfilling lives.
Society 5.0 for the betterment of human lives. It'll phrase from the stress of driving, Debbie. That's a that's a really great way to reframe the idea that we're having our personal transportation removed uh, through government yeah. policy. Yeah, I think Alex is. Uh... Alex, did you want to comment? Yes, I wanted to point out the two weasel words in there. The first is new wisdom. You can't have wisdom from intelligence alone. You work through data, information, learning, and through much more processing of those two other parts of the God-given character, the feelings and the will, you arrive at wisdom. A machine can't compute wisdom for you, however sophisticated it is. You can't input enough to, to achieve that. And at the end of that awful clip, uh, we heard that humans have infinite possibilities. Now, both Professor Barry Smith and Dr. Jorgs Landgrebe in the interview with me, from very different perspectives, uh, one religious, the other secular, say, uh, you just cannot do that. We have biological maximums. Uh, we have thresholds that we cannot cross. And it's it's the foolishness, which you also see in left-wing politics of the current day. Uh, James Lindsay's interview with David uh, Scott is on the homepage about this called uh, Overcoming Woke Ideology. That's where the notion takes hold that we can create infinite possibilities in the economy, for example. You just can't. And, you know, this is the, whether it's an Indian or a Japanese example, uh, it is uh, you know, going back to this notion uh, that you can make people dissatisfied with wealth creation and dissatisfied with their biological boundaries. It's the same thing as gender based wokeness, really. The idea that you can just be anything you want to be and the AI, AI will help you. Mm. Well, um, going on from that, there is another little video and there's plenty of videos, everybody, about society. Um, 5.0. You can see the day in the life of a child in Society 5.0, and these children seem to appear to have got prosthetic limbs, a day in the life of a 40-year-old in Society 5.0. But I wanted to look at medicine. So this is a very, very brief video on medicine in Society 5.0. In Japan, innovations in the field of life science have been transforming our society so that people can live longer, healthy lives. For example, big biometric data gathered continuously every day will alert users to an illness before there are any outward signs, enabling them to receive prompt medical treatment. With new medical and communication technology, patients will be able to consult with doctors anywhere, anytime. VR surgical simulators will enable more advanced examination and diagnosis. The knowledge and technology of myriad physicians will be compiled into a multi-dimensional, shareable database. Improving medical technology as a whole to help eliminate the current disparity in the level of medical care among patients. Diagnostic imaging, which has become fast and accurate thanks to deep learning is contributing to the early detection of diseases that have been difficult to diagnose. This will enable doctors to spend more time with their patients and reduce the physical and economic burden on patients. Japan aims at realizing Society 5.0, a technology-based, human-centered society. 
But don't panic because it's not limited to Japan because uh, you knew that it would be here in the UK after all, didn't you? And of course, there is a Society 5.0 Institute, which is actually London based. And this institute, it promotes Society 5.0 vision and methodology to contribute to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So you can see how it's come full circle. So we're looking at the integration of physical and cyber world. So who runs Society 5.0 in London. So when I went to have a look, and again, I'm going to apologise for my pronunciation, I might need to bring Alex in here, um, but this is a Dr Yildiz Tug Tugba, um, I, I hope I've got that right, but Kara, Kara, she's received the iconic woman creating a better world for AI award at the Women Economic forum and I thought did I did I read that right because number one I'm looking at this young lady who's president she's a social entrepreneur she's an international political economy expert she's um she's worked um for the Turkish government uh the World Bank and but then I saw this women's economic forum and I didn't understand quite what it was so I thought I'd go and have a look and yes the world the women's economic forum does exist and this is it, uh, the world's econ uh, the women's, sorry, I keep getting it wrong. You can see it's a, a tongue twister. The Women's Economic Forum is part of the G100 Club. And this is a women's, a women's enterprise. It's an influential group of 100 women. But they do have a male counterpart. And I've just popped a little clip in the bottom right there. It's called the G100 Denim Club, and that's for the gentlemen. So these are very, very powerful women in big organizations. But let's look and see who is the founder of the um, Women's Economic Forum. And I don't know if you've got the slide on, on the founder or not, but her name is Dr. Harbin Aura Rai. Um, she's she's apparently a thought leader. Now, I don't know what a thought leader is. I don't know what a global icon is either. She's a visionary and she's in very high places. So this lady has founded and the, the Women's Economic Forum, there you go, um, that's who she is. And I, I have to say, I've underlined a few of the titles at the bottom because I don't know what a thought leader is. Um, I don't know if you gentlemen have got a comment, but I don't know what that is. But um, this is Dr. Harborin Aurora Rai. And, and I was just quite surprised to find her and then I was even more surprised to find that they're having a conference in London this year. Apparently, it's an annual affair. And there you go, the annual WEF London 2023 Commonwealth meetings um, in October. So I just wanted to draw that to people's attention, really. Society 5.0, um, the fifth, fifth Industrial Revolution and the Women's Economic Forum. I hadn't come across them before. If anybody else wants to do some research, it would be nice to know more. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Well, my initial comment, Debbie, is I'm fascinated because I thought the World Economic Forum had got rid of women. Women don't exist. We're being told there's no such thing as a woman. And yet there's this whole level of women thought leaders, thought leaders equivalent to future leaders, which was another common purpose. Um, description of people who are being trained to lead the world. Alex. Yes, uh, the branding of this WEF 
second variant, WEF, has been untouched by native speakers. And they've ended up calling themselves, no doubt they're expensive. Uh, they're spending as much as they can on their branding, but they got it wrong. They're calling themselves the Women Economic Forum without the possessive S. We could just forgive them the mistake because it could just be a bunch of keen Indians and other and Turkish ladies and whatever who didn't bother to check. Uh, or it could in, it betoken something else because without the possessive S, the Women Economic Forum makes women the object of the forum. It becomes an economic forum which discusses what to do with women. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. Right. Let's uh, move on to France then and uh, more uh, protests and fires being set yesterday. Um, so here they are uh, in Paris. I believe this is Paris. Uh, so protesters and police were uh, at each other's throats again last night uh, at the uh, margins of the, the various protests, hundreds of thousands of people out. Uh, and of course, a reminder, this is all about the fact that uh, President Macron has uh, attempted to use or has used the uh, executive powers that he has uh, under the constitution to push through a law without a vote in the uh, French parliament. Uh, this was to push the... Uh, pension age up to 64. Uh, it didn't end with uh, with the protests in the cities uh, in the uh, countryside as well. I think this is near Nantes, uh, if I'm right. Uh, but anyway, the motorways closed again, once again, by fires uh, and huge queues of traffic and so on. So the protests continue. Uh, there's more to come, I believe, on the 10th of April. Um, and uh, well, here's uh, Laurent Berger, or Berger, uh, not sure, Alex can remind me how his name is pronounced in a second. Uh, he's really saying that he, he, by the way, he's the head of the uh, CFDT union. He's saying the anger is beginning to rise even amongst the most peaceful pro protesters. Um, so, uh, Alex, I mean, this, this situation in France continues to build. Uh, and as we mentioned on Friday's program, uh, some of the rhetoric coming uh, out of the crowds is quite. Uh, uh, determined, uh, shall we say? And of course, we had the front page from the Charlie Hebdo magazine uh, with uh, with their cartoon cutting the head off uh, of Macron. So uh, you know the the situation in France builds. Such is the way of situations in France, Mike. Of course, you used to live there, so you know for yourself. Uh, the people are indeed determined, disgusted, and decapitational. Laurent Berger is talking, of course, from a, a strong tradition of syndication, trade union movements in France. But I think even in France now, the trade union leaders are admitting, not always disingenuously, but quite honestly sometimes, they can't control the firebrands in their own movement. Uh, the French are by no means stupid people. They take on a lot of information, much more than the average British person, I think, from wider ranges of sources. If you look at their bookshops and their media scene, they know jolly well what's planned for them. And there's no hiding it from the French people. Uh, that was indeed a blockade of uh, somewhere near Nantes, because the whole idea there was to blockade an entire region, Brittany and adjoining regions, the Grand West, as they call it, by uh, choking certain points on the motorway. So if you clear one, uh, a fire to a bale of hay starts up another 50 miles down the road. So escalating tactics and French Republican discourse, the, the basis of citizenship there, does allow them to remind their leaders that they used to chop their heads off. So this is only going to go one way, I'm afraid. And the French are in it for the long haul, as far as I can see. They're, they're not going to wimp out like, dare I say, a lot of British protesters might. Indeed. But uh, in the meantime, uh, well, success electorally for uh, the protesters in, in the Netherlands, the Dutch farmers and so on. But what else is going on? Well, that's the whole point. The success was by this uh, party, Boerenburgerbeweging, the 
farmers and citizens movement, which is a, you could call it a split from the Christian Democratic Party, the equivalent of the conservatives in most countries, uh, which is neither conservative nor Christian anymore. But, uh, and people have been asking me why I haven't been reporting more on what's going on right here in the Netherlands with the farmers, but things honestly haven't crystallized yet. And besides, we don't like duplicating reporting strands where other free media people are doing an excellent job. So um, I'll bring this on first. It's uh, Peter Emanuelsen, known on online as Peter Sweden, who's established a long, solid reputation of careful reporting on a number of issues that the mainstream media bury going back to the middle of last decade. And he has, uh, like most people these days who are in the free media scene, got a Substack account. So Peter Sweden's Emmanuel, uh, Peter Emanuelsen, uh, Substack has this piece up, uh, which embeds a couple of interviews. Uh, this one is with a very young, as you can see on screen, if you're listening, if you're watching and listening together, uh, you will see that it's a very young farmer who's been uh, expropriated or threat facing that threat. It's called the state wants to seize his farm. And Peter actually does the unthinkable. He interviews the young farmer, the next generation, and sees what he thinks he uh, is uh, is likely to happen. And uh, he also includes in the piece, Peter Sweden's piece, uh, uh, an image of the Farmers' Defence Force, which, you know, names itself like most trendy things in English, but, uh, but uh, the, the Dutch perhaps don't realise how, how paramilitary the associations of this phrase would be in English. It's all a question of optics, really. Um, and the reason I say it's too early for it to crystallise yet is that this BBB party may have gone from zero to 17 seats in the upper house of the Dutch parliament overnight. But the question, and we'll bring this next slide on screen to, to illustrate it in a very plain talking way by Michael Yon, Y-O-N, an American who is reporting from the Netherlands. Now, the question is, uh, who really represents the farmers? Is it the people who have Boeren farmers in the name, namely this new BBB party set up by a lady who split from the Christian Democrats, maybe soon to entice the heavy hitting Christian Democrat, Peter Omerzicht, him of the uh, uh, unearthing of the tax scandal? Uh, or is it going to be the Forum for Democracy who are, you know, beyond the pale in Dutch rhetoric now there, they're, they may be outlawed in time. This is Thierry Baudet's party who have been uh, attacking Davos for years. So Jon uses quite strong language. He ends up calling the leader uh, of the BBB, the new farmers party, Mrs. von der Plas, uh, a dog king at the bottom of the, uh, the, the extract that we'll put on screen now. Um, he's not going to win prizes for um, uh, refined discourse, but that's not Michael Jon's aim. Uh, he's reporting from the ground and the feeling of the Dutch farmers is that BBB is, I'm sorry to use this phrase because we hate having it used un improperly against us or others, but I think that it's fair to say that the Dutch farmers thinking is that BBB is controlled opposition because Car Caroline von der Plas in her party manifesto is not opposed uh, to uh, the reduction of nitrogen emissions or nitrous oxide emissions. Um, and there's a whole raft of areas in which the Forum for Democracy and the Dutch uh, Reformed Party, the SGP, have actually come out and said, we do not want anything to do with uh, Davos targets and uh, any other international uh, internationally agreed goals uh, in the name of health of animal or, or human. And um, we're going to secede from any such agreements. The BBB is within the system. That's why things haven't settled yet. And Michael Yon also includes this ominous picture of a German Polizei water cannon, which has crossed the border, no doubt under uh, European Union expedited auspices to allow the Dutch police who are on screen here to threaten to take people's eyes and limbs off with them. Not a nice scene. We got through the whole of the Northern Ireland troubles for a generation with no water cannon whatsoever. Taking a step back though, 
what has permitted all this to happen? And this is a long read that people really should invest time in. It's come up this morning, written by Raphael Benjamin from a pronounced Dutch reformed perspective. People shouldn't be offended to find Christian arguments in here because that's what the, the man's background is. We're making it an article rather than an opinion piece because it's full of original research as well. And he's entitling his piece, Ultimately, the Netherlands has no actual constitution. And it's a long and detailed argument, but just look at this very first point he makes to establish his, his, his argument. Property rights are not absolute in the constitution, such as the modern Dutch constitution and many other Western countries as well, because a hundred years ago, as in many other Western countries, uh, what is now called eminent domain or uh, compulsory purchase was introduced to the Netherlands. If this law was not on the books, the Dutch farmers wouldn't be ag getting agitated in the first place because they would just stay at home or on the farm rather and say, you can't touch me. I have sanctity of property. They don't read it through. It's well worth uh, understanding what's gone on here. Uh, it, he's a kind of Dutch equivalent to the thinking uh, of the Dissidents' Guides to the Constitution series, which uh, I have embedded links to in several points of this translation. And it's not just the Netherlands. We have a lot of constitutional writing coming up on the website now, uh, courtesy of Philip Ridley. And we have two pieces so far, more to come. If you hit the uh, link there to his name in red, and this applies to any of our writers, you will see the whole back issue of what they've written for us. Philip Ridley wrote first on 77th Brigade being unlawfully deployed because of the constitutional settlement about the standing army. He's gone on to write about the parliamentary conflict of interest of particularly Tobias Elwood, a junior defence minister, being a member of parliament and an army officer. And this also applies to our foreign secretary, James Cleverly, who on the quiet is also an artillery officer in his spare time. Um, here's the nub of it, as reported, as, as argued by um, Phil Ridley. Elwood has sworn two conflicting oaths, as has any serviceman in Parliament. In the Armed Forces Oath, uh, he has sworn to obey the King, which means obey the government, obey the executive when ordered to do so. And in the lower oath, the parliamentary oath, he has on behalf of the people who put him in Parliament sworn to be loyal, to bear allegiance to His Majesty, which does not include obedience because you have to tell the Crown where to get off. That's the job of a parliamentarian. And Raphael Benjamin in the Dutch piece has made the same point. Our Dutch parliamentarians, he says, don't do that anymore. Uh, so there we are. Uh, it's uh, impossible to satisfy two masters. Um, so Phil replies, uh, Phil argues here uh, that you cannot have free and impartial debate, which is required by our constitution, specifically the Bill of Rights. Uh, you cannot have that if some of the members, much less some of the ministers of Parliament, of the Crown in Parliament, uh, are armed forces officers, uh, because the sacred civilian legislative role, as he calls it, going back to the Bill of Rights stipulation, freedom of speech should not be impeached or questioned anywhere outside Parliament, that role's inconsistent with being beholden by oath to any orders from His Majesty and any generals and officers. To the contrary, members of Parliament should be free to criticise the King, generals and senior officers. They did so a lot more before the two world wars, uh, but Phil goes on to say during the uh, around the two world wars, uh, lots of fixes were brought into play to allow hundreds of members of parliament to be serving officers. Uh, but if MPs can't debate uh, freely what's going on with military policy, they're unable to represent their constituents. And Elwood has ended up spying on his through the 77th Brigade setup. Uh, now, if you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, please uh, head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, there are options to help us out there. Uh, and your uh, your support very much needed and appreciated. You can pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, but all, please also share material you find on the UK Column website, on UK Column extracts, uh, or on the various platforms.
okay and a reminder about the av alternative view series so we've got the 22nd of october this year a day conference in the leonardo hotel milton Keynes. tickets for that have been selling very quickly so if you'd like to attend you need to get onto the av website and also there will be an online av we'll call it a mini event on the 23rd of april if you've got the right date today um, which uh, the uk column is facilitating from our studio here in plymouth england so uh, look for details of that as well now a really lovely little interlude here because on uh, monday we mentioned that a lady had thanked us for not putting up the membership prices for people who are already members uh, she said she was on a very uh, tight income and um, this was the little clip that we put on screen uh, so she said i wanted to thank you for keeping the original subscription f uh, subscription fee frozen for people who are already members i'm disabled and on benefits well the lovely thing is that a very kind and generous viewer contacted us and said they would pay for a a lifetime membership for Cheryl and also made a donation to the UK column on top of it and my goodness that's wonderful and this is really lovely to see so thank you very much for that this one's quite interesting it was a parental um, update newsletter sent by Ben Horton the head teacher at Redland Green School um, this was passed through to the UK column a few days ago but what was interesting was the comment from the parent it said hi i thought you might be interested to see the first paragraph of an email i received about from my son's school last week a local mp came to the school and took questions from year 11 pupils one of them being about quote the impartiality of the bbc i don't know whether a 15 or 16 year old pupil would have asked a question like this or whether the subject was woven into the answer from the MP but the point is the parent was suspicious and I think they've every right to be so and uh, this one made me smile so we were highlighted to a tweet it was Professor Susan Mitchie I think you're going to mention her later on Debbie uh, it says the UK government's attempt to frighten people into Covid protected behaviours was at odds with its scientific advice read the advice actually given very different from that media smear scare stories over the years and then there's a link through to a bmj article uh, well somebody else um, decided to come back on this and they say how's this working out for you and they go to a mail article which uh, where the headline was social distancing and face masks should stay forever says communist sage committee member Su uh, professor susan mitchie so um some interesting uh, things there also quite a few people have been pointing out the good work of the residents of colchester who've been taking on their council to do with matters to do with agenda 2030 and uh, we have a, a very interesting film clip of that which we'll be showing in extra time also debbie evans blog uh, is up so if you haven't seen the latest have a look on the uk column website and uh, we'll will drop from that into the subject of Ukraine and tanks. Uh, yes, so, uh, well, excellent news, according to the Ministry of Defence. Uh, we went behind the scenes to show how the British Army spent several weeks training Ukrainian tank crews to operate and fight with Mighty Challenger 2. So they've got a, a little video uh, embedded in their tweet there that you can see on screen. Um, so this was uh, published yesterday. Um, and 
very timely because the world is standing with Ukraine, as you can see, according to this tweet. Uh, but if we look at what the defense of uh, Ukraine are saying, uh, they're saying they have arrived. Uh, strikers and cougars from the United States, challengers from the UK, uh, martyrs from Germany have officially joined the air assault forces of the Ukrainian army. Uh, the greatest vehicles for the best soldiers onward is what the uh, defense of Ukraine is saying. Uh, well, let's have a look at a couple of the comments that people have made to this. Uh, so, uh, Kami O saying, at what point do we accept this isn't just a Ukraine war, but is looking much more like a world war, uh, indeed. Uh, and uh, Hidden Thope, Othope saying, two days, I give it two days. Yeah. I think that is a fairly accurate assessment. Well, we've got a hodgepodge of vehicles. We've got minimum training for the crews. They were just about to be able to drive and operate these these uh, pieces of equipment on the battlefield. Um, uh, the big problem is uh, the Ukrainians are running out of manpower fast. And of course, the uh, Russians are increasing in strength every day on the battlefield uh, in every way. So. Um, the analysts who are looking into the war in a detailed way are saying, well, what's this going to do? It might prolong the fighting by a few weeks, maybe a couple of months if the Ukrainians really get their act together. But ultimately, these vehicles and the men will be destroyed like all the other. So it's going to prolong the death. Um, let's look at reality. If uh, we haven't got much to say about the supply of uh, vehicles and tanks. Uh, here's the mail. Orlando Bloom tells President Zelensky the strength of the Ukrainians is awe-inspiring as the actor and UN ambassador discusses Putin's horrific war crimes against children. Now, what is this article about? Let's just bring in the horror side of it, because, of course, we're dealing with Pirates of the Caribbean and the curse of the Black Pearl. The curse, of course, is Ukraine. Um, but uh, what this is really about is Ukraine is losing the war. The US knows it, the UK, the UK knows it, NATO knows it, the European Union knows it, but we've got to do everything possible to keep the idea in the minds of the Western world that uh, everything's okay. So bring in the pop stars, bring in the actors, uh, bring in Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, this is the horrible reality, and it's the secret, of course, that uh, the media in the West does not want to talk about, the number of Ukrainian war casualties. Now, the independent analysts at the moment calculate these sorts of figures, Ukrainian dead, 250,000 to 375,000. That's a pretty wide bracket, but the overall numbers of Ukrainian dead are clearly massive. And the numbers dying every day are increasing as the fighting intensifies. Wounded against those ratios have got to be roughly 400,000 to half a million men. These figures are simply being kept out of sight of not only the Ukrainian public, but of course the Western public. And against that, estimates of Russian dead, 30 to 50,000. Now, the 50,000 figure I am putting forward uh, based on my assessments, what I'm reading. Uh, but of course, the reality is it's been known for some time that the ratio of Ukrainian to Russian dead is a figure from five to one up to 10 to one in some situations. And that is uh, giving you the disparity between those two figures. 
But uh, we've mentioned the fact that uh, the West is so desperate to try and do something that they have tried to scrape together shells. You've talked about this, Mike, in the past, but we'll just remind the audience about it. And uh, this is where we get to the nitty gritty. The Telegraph, back on the 24th of March, Ukraine may not be able to reclaim Crimea by force, the US says. And there's a quote of uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken claiming that some of Kiev's war aims may only be achieved through diplomacy. So this is the reality, the West, the US, NATO, the EU now recognizing Ukraine is losing the war and will lose the war and they're trying to do something about it. So this was a couple of quotes from Blinken. Ukrainian forces would not be able to win back all of the territories in their sites like Crimea. I believe there will be territory in Ukraine that the Ukrainians are determined to fight for on the ground, but they will have to find, uh, sorry, but they will have to try to reclaim it in other ways. And uh, today we had this astonishing headline from The Independent uh, with an embedded video watch as Anthony Blinken holds a virtual session with uh, Zelensky. Uh, this is all about peace, a just and lasting peace in Ukraine. But of course, when you hear him speaking, it's all to be on US terms effectively. So let's just have a look at a little bit of the uh, video clip of Blinken speaking. Um, if it appears strange, this is because it appears to be quite a cavalier setup on the uh, video um, presentation that he gave. Uh, but I think we get a good idea of the angle he's coming from in saying, well, it's going to be on our terms. Let's have a look at the clip. He can still deliver on it, matter most of their lives and to their livelihoods. Um, and we see authoritarian regimes reaching beyond their borders to coerce free and open societies through increasingly aggressive revisionist foreign policies. Nothing illustrates the gravity of that threat more than Russia's brutal and unjustified war against Ukraine. Uh, in February 2022, President Putin launched a full-scale war against the people of Ukraine, attempting to conquer their country, topple their democratically elected government, redraw their borders. Indeed, President Putin's overall objective was to erase Ukraine's identity as an independent sovereign nation and absorb it into Russia. This war is an attack not only on Ukraine, but on the international rules-based order that seeks to defend international peace and stability and uphold, in the words of the United Nations Charter, equal rights of men and women and of nations large and small. And as this group very well knows, the victims of Russia's aggression are not only Ukrainians, but people all around the world. The Kremlin's wars exacerbated acute food insecurity already at crisis levels due to COVID-19, climate change and other conflicts, putting millions at risk. It pushed up the price of fertilizer, fuel and food, making it harder for families in every part of the world to make ends meet. Well, that's a very short clip. Um, the whole uh, piece is quite long. I don't know how long it is because it was going on as we started preparation for the news, but encourage people to look it out. Uh, but Alex, I, I was watching your face as he got going. Uh, the moment I heard um, the rules-based international order mentioned and climate change, uh, I knew that what we got is full US rhetoric here. So there's no feeling for the Ukrainian people. And... Uh, the, I think the twist here is that we, 
Blinken recognizes Ukraine is going to lose the war. So by putting out the Ukraine, the US-Ukrainian peace deal, he can try and make the uh, Russians look even worse if they continue to fight. But what's your take? That is a very astute observation, Brian. I think the, the dialogue uh, that's now coming out of Western capitals is very much of this nature. It would be so jolly unfair if the Ukrainians were allowed to lose because Putin will get away with so much more. It will uh, not be a good end to the, uh, to the fairy tale. The moral of the story will be wrong. So it's already into the realm of make-believe rather than cold, hard military facts, isn't it? Uh, and particularly the logistical defence industrial facts behind them, who can resupply, who can get men and material into the theatre without them being uh, having something horrible happen to them on the way. Uh, these considerations are now speaking louder than the rhetoric, but they're still having to be dressed up in this, this, this fine language. And of course, you're quite right. Neither the US Constitution nor any of the treaties the US government has signed, and this applies to any Western country supporting Ukraine, None of these constitutional and treaty-based obligations include the rules-based international order because that was freshly invented from whole cloth a couple of decades ago. Yeah. Well, OK. Um, and um, let's just uh, bring him on screen. Apologies to viewers for this, but uh, we've heard Blinken at work. Let's uh, have a look at Tony Blair at work on the subject of Ukraine. Even if you are completely opposed to uh, the removal of Saddam Hussein in in, in Iraq, the idea that removing a, a dictator who's brutalized his people, engaged in two regional wars, in breach of several UN and or multiple UN resolutions, that killed 12,000 people in one day through the use of chemical weapons, the idea that's equated to invading a country which has got a democratically elected president, never, as far as I know, started a regional conflict or has, has done any act of aggression against its neighbours. You know, even if you completely disagree with the right, you should push back hard on that argument. It's got to be quick, Alex, but I'll let you respond to that one as well, because I was watching your face as Tony Blair was talking or telling Porky Pies. Who is this you, this mysterious second person that's being addressed? Is it legislatures? Is it uh, the executive? Is it the judiciary? Is it the people? Is it the sovereign? You know, this you is, is the uh, uh, the Tony Blairs of the world, isn't it? Who, who feel that they must act, who feel that they must act beyond authority. Yes, absolutely. Well, let's just finish the segment because there's more evidence that the West is now backing away from Ukraine. And uh, what we see is uh, that now the mercenaries are no longer popular. So here's the New York Times. Stolen valor, the US volunteers in Ukraine who lie, waste and bicker. And this is a piece really pulling the ground out from under mercenaries. So they were encouraged at the start of the war, but mercenaries are now bad and are, gonna, and are being vilified. And this is from New Zealand where there was, uh, it's quite a sad story, but a young man who felt compelled to rush out to Ukraine and fight. He was um, contacting home on a daily basis and then it went it went silent and uh, the guess is that he's dead or at least a prisoner of war. But again, encouraged at the start of the war, uh, the death of mercenaries is now hitting home. All of this is the West beginning to backpedal from the mess they've created in Ukraine. And as we have said to some of the uh, Ukrainian publications, you are about to receive the final betrayal by the West. 
Uh, and Alex, the question then is, is depleted uranium already in use in Ukraine? Well, it seems that there it, it well may be, and this is actually based on British measurements at the moment. Uh, the piece is written here that's come gone up for UK column by Christopher Hell, uh, a Swede who started writing for us. Uh, nuclear expert being quoted in the piece is uh, Chris Busby, who's had long experience with Latvia, which has similar post-Soviet issues with nuclear. Uh, well, it's mainly civilian nuclear fuel storage, but weapons are also part of the equation in Latvia's past as well. So. Uh, the, the the claim that Busby is making is that depleted uranium may all be, or rather, yes, it is coming from Russ Busby, that the EU may already be in use in Ukraine. And uh, Christopher Hell has got a graphic here, uh, which has been taken from uh, Chris Busby's paper, which is linked at the top of the piece, which is undergoing peer review at the moment. You can see five South Central English uh, places uh, designated by the uh, coloured dots and lines. And these are places around Oldermaston, the middle, the grey place there, which is the headquarters of the Atomic Weapons Establishment, the AWE. Uh, it's in the area just west of London. And these measurements show massive leaps in the amount of, I don't want to be shot for using the wrong phrase here, but shall we say for layman's terms, ambient or atmospheric radiation levels since uh, 0.55 on the graph, which is when the Ukraine war began. Uh, it's in na nanobecquerels per cubic meter, so it's an atmospheric reading taken from air filters. So these nine locations, five are shown on screen, all show very significant increases in the amount of uranium in the air. Now, who's the culprit? Towards the end of this short and cogent article, Christopher Hell says uh, that the British Army realized the problem with carcinogenic properties of depleted uranium after horrendous uh, suffering among Iraqi children and its own service people as well. There are some links towards the bottom of this piece to really awful uh, pictures of malformed, deformed children. I think it's quite conclusively agreed now that this is a result of depleted uranium in the area. And it's the indiscriminate effect of this weapon, which makes Britain and other Western powers that supply DU shells, for example, to, to Ukraine, puts them in the in the dock ultimately because weapons of indiscriminate effect is the very kind of thing that Tony Blair deplores and Blinken deplore deplores when they say when they say that we must be doing something about the Russians in Ukraine. Yes, okay. Thank you for that. Now let's just uh, move very briefly on to Syria and on Friday's program Vanessa mentioned the uh, US uh, attack in, in Syria or the US uh, military action in Syria. Uh, the UK government has responded uh, to this incident uh, and uh, so their position is this. Uh, we recognise the US's right to use force in self-defence. Uh, now, that's quite an interesting position to take because uh, in, in doing so, of course, they recognise the US's uh, right to enter a country without being invited. Um, so anyway, let's, uh, let's have a look at a short video clip here. This is John Kirby, who's the US uh, National Security Advisor. Uh, talking about this incident. President Biden said he would act if U.S. troops were under fire. Is the U.S. going to retaliate? We have acted with U.S. troops under fire. First of all, condolences. Our condolences to the family of the U.S. contractor, U.S. citizen who was killed. President in Ottawa made it very clear uh, that we're going to always act to defend our troops and our facilities. And here's what's not going to change, Margaret. The mission in ISIS is not going to change. We have under 1,000 troops in Syria that are going after that network, which is, while greatly diminished, still viable mm -hmm. uh, and still critical. So we're going to stay at that task. The president is committed to keeping those 900 or so troops in Absolutely. Syria. Absolutely. Um
So the U.S. going nowhere in Syria, but 900 or so troops is how he described it. Um, so the Chinese media then was uh, interviewing or asking questions of the deputy uh, spokesman for the Secretary General of the United Nations, uh, Farhan Haq, uh, a day or two ago. Uh, he was asked about this issue of U.S. troops in Syria, and this is what he had to say. Do you think the presence of the U.S. military in Syria is is illegal or not? Uh, that that's not an issue that uh, that uh, we're we're dealing with at this stage. There's been a war. But uh, is that is that there, there's because it, there's, it sounds very familiar. This week we talk a lot about the UN Charter, the the the, the international law, and relative resolutions. But it, it sounds to me a foreign foreign presence, foreign military based presence in another country without invitation sounds like sounds like something else to me, you know. Uh, I'll, I'll leave your analysis to you. Uh, that, that there's, there's uh, at, at this stage. What's the, what's the difference at, at between, stage, between the, Syria, there's, there's no, the situation in Syria and the situation in Ukraine? There's no U.S. armed forces inside mm -hmm. of Syria, uh, and so uh, so I don't have a. It's it's not uh, a you, parallel you, situation. You're, you're to sure some of the there's no there's no U.S. U.S. military personnel. I, in I Syria. believe there's military activity. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but uh, but uh, in terms of ground presence in Syria, I'm not aware of that. Okay, five U.S. service members were injured in that attack. If there's no, there were no U.S. soldier service members in Syria, how could they got injured? Uh, That's weird, right? Should I ask yeah. you about that? Alex, uh, what are your thoughts? Very, very briefly. <laughs> this is called wolf warrior, isn't it, in Chinese diplomacy and, and uh, uh, regime-compliant journalism. And I don't mean to cast aspersions on the gentleman there, but this is the first time I've seen wolf warrior strategy going down to the level of, you know, having a, a verbal punch-up with the UN. Uh, it, it's, it's quite a sight to behold, isn't it, the, the, the cheek on that guy. I think well-placed cheek. And I, th I don't think a Western journalist would actually have the... Uh, the cojones to ask these kinds of questions. Certainly not in the ironic style that that gentleman did. No, oh, indeed. Uh, so anyway, uh, let's move on then to the issue of defence union. Now, we've been talking about European defence union for a while, but uh, there's been an undercurrent of actually global defence union uh, all the way through uh, as we've gone. So let's bring uh, James Cleverly on screen, of course. Now, last week, uh, or he and uh, the vice president of the European Commission uh, Morris, uh, um, I'm going to have to get Alex to, to tell me how this is pronounced, but anyway, uh, they formally signed off on the Windsor framework uh, at the Withdrawal Agreement Joint Committee in London. Now, of course, this was the thing that uh, uh, supposedly changes the uh, arrangements with respect to the Northern, Northern Irish border. doesn't really do anything of the kind, but anyway, uh, there is a defence aspect of this because as a result of the success of this, uh, the various uh, officials got together to discuss uh, UK and EU defence cooperation once again. Um, and so um, that continues to, to go. They're talking about uh, cyber defence, they're talking about uh, security cooperation in response to Russia's war in Ukraine, and they're very much attempting to bring the EU back, or to bring the UK back into EU defence union structures. Uh, in the meantime, of course, uh, we are we have been sending, well, in this case, HMS uh, Mersey deployed to the Baltic Sea, uh, involved with the Joint Expeditionary Force. Uh, and uh, they, this follows similar exercises with Sweden and Finland's uh, navies. Um, and then we had James Heapy, uh, MP, uh, who's the Armed Forces Minister, 
Uh, he's attending last week the Anglo-German Königswinter Conference, uh, but that wasn't the only thing he was attending. He was also attending the Schumann, Schumann the inaugural Schumann Security and Defence Conference, uh, which had 400 participants, uh, 50 countries, including the EU, Africa, Middle East, uh, America, the Gulf, Asia, Pacific. So this is uh, a huge defence uh, integration exercise. And then in the meantime, uh, we had uh, uh, the Dame Baroness Goldie. Uh, this is the UK and Malaysia, uh, part of the five power defence arrangement. So we've got the five flags of the five powers in, in the background here. Here she is. There she was signing something and here she is uh, with uh, the other representatives of the five power defence uh, arrangements. And, and we just, uh, Alex, we just see this continuous effort to integrate. We've got one final one here. Uh, actually, we shouldn't forget, of course, the number of countries that are involved in training Ukraine to drive these new tanks around the place. UK, Sweden, Canada, Netherlands, Denmark, New Zealand, Lithuania, Australia, Norway, Finland. We've got this, this huge effort to bring countries together outside the sort of na the scope of NATO in various bilateral, multilateral agreements. Well, where, is it, where does this end? Well, Britannia is the defence fairy, isn't she, Mike? She waves her magic wand and all the Western nations get their ducks in a row or their tanks or their frigates and make the world safe for democracy, to borrow a phrase from Woodrow Wilson a century ago. Uh, this five powers agreement harks back to 1960 when Singapore got independence. Uh, the fear was that the Chinese would block it uh, and reverse what Britain had done to the Chinese in the Straits of Malacca for so long. So we got the Australians, the New Zealanders and the Malays uh, to agree uh, with our Navy, which was retreating from east of Suez at the very time, uh, that we would uh, protect Singapore as, the, as if it were still a protectorate. And to go back to the beginning of the segment, I mean, there's unthinkable things there with the uh, Windsor Agreement being signed off by Maros Shevchovic, a Slovak in his capacity as a European commissioner. Uh, nothing against Slovaks, but, you know, what's a Slovak doing here when the Irish Taoiseach is not involved? Ireland represented by a Slovak to bring the troubles to an end. You just couldn't make it up. No. Well, I'm just going to add here, if I may, Alex, that I think what you're seeing is the embryonic formation of the one world military system, um, where, of course, the ultimate is that if, if we have a world military, the only enemy can be the population of the planet itself. But I think that the more these partnerships expand to more and more and more countries, uh, to me, this is an indication of where it's going, which is one world military system. And we have to keep in mind that it's Ukraine that has reinvigorated all this momentum. Yeah. It has pushed a whole bunch of momentum back into all these old uh, arrangements that are being brought back to the surface uh, and reinvigorated. Okay, let's move on to COVID then, Alex. Uh, and uh, well, what happened to the pandemic? Well, for that, you'll need to read the latest piece by one of our heavy hitting writers, Simon Elmer, whom we've also interviewed. Uh, he's asking whatever happened to the pandemic, and uh, we've changed the initial image. So if this is uh, shared on Twitter, you'll see a First World War propaganda piece. We've now changed it for this British government <clears throat> uh, poster. Look her in the eyes and tell her you never bend the rules. Some of the worst propaganda of the whole COVID issue anywhere in the world, not just in Britain. Uh, Elmer, who is, of course, an architect by trade, has a penchant for statistics, as do some of our uh, writers in, in a very notable way. And I've chopped off uh, uh, 
sake, the sake of legibility and size, the numbers of or the years rather from the uh, y-axis along the bottom here. But this is just one of the 11 graphics in Simon Elmer's piece along uh, with a lot of uh, analytic prose. Uh, this is age standardized mortality rates uh, for England and Wales, going all the way back to the middle of the Second World War, 1942. And you can see peeping out at the very right hand end is the bar for 2020 when a negligible, just going by eye, that's less than a 10% increase on 2019 mortality was seen when age standardized, of course, without age standardization, the statistics are of little use. That's all there was. And before that, you've got uh, all the way back to the baby boomers and the wartime generation, continuous improvements, continuous decreases in mortality. Uh, and this is what all the fuss was about. Uh, it, just in the middle of the piece, Simon Elmer <clears throat> uh, brings out these bullet points, which I won't read out, but just to show people the depth of analysis here. This is all from early COVID. This is spring to summer 2020. He goes through chronologically uh, in the section of his article, which is about the strong case that deaths were caused by lockdown. Of course, UK Column brought out a piece right there at the start of uh, COVID called Lockdown Deaths, Not COVID Deaths. Uh, look, the NHS, the Office for National Statistics, the Alzheimer's Society is talking about the uh, repercussions and the de deleterious effects of being locked up, lack of access to health care and socialization leading to people's de de depression, festering wounds and death. The ONS continues in July 2020, already attributing 16,000 excess deaths, not to COVID, but to changes to emergency care and social care, themes dear to, Debbie, to Debbie's heart, under lockdown. Nursing Times reporting the same, the Institute of Cancer Research pointing out very similar things, cancer research again. And then the final extract of this part of the piece, the ONS, the British Heart Foundation, the British Medical Journal, the NHS, and the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, but reporting on British hospitals, all reporting fairly solid evidence that, that we had lockdown deaths, not COVID deaths. Uh, so quite a read, and as usual, it applies to Raphael Benjamin's piece on the Dutch Constitution as well, where he explicitly says so at the end. Why is it left to people whose core specialism is not respectively the law or statistics to make these uh, arguments? Uh, but that, that, that's the position we're in. And as this is perhaps the last segment of today's news that I'm nominally uh, presenting, I should just uh, reassure viewers that you won't see much of me in the next month. But I'm not going uh, anywhere vis-a-vis -vis my commitments with UK Column, I will just be uh, abroad doing language study, which is necessary for another of the things I do in life. So please don't panic as I'm not on your screens for the next month. Uh, well, uh, we just very, very, very briefly, Alex, please, uh, the lockdown files sigh up here. Yes, uh, an equal heavy hitter, Ian Davis, who I know admires Simon Elmer's writing as well, uh, has brought out a very strong comment piece of, called the lockdown files sigh up. Um, he refers back to his writing on Partygate, uh, there is, an ex uh, there is a, a level beyond which people will not rock the boat in the mainstream media. So he makes a, a multifarious case uh, that this was licensed, uh, I would almost say court jester behaviour by Isabel Oakeshott and the Daily Telegraph in saying, ha ha, the emperor had no clothes, it was all Matt Hancock's fault. Uh, and Ian Davies is having none of it. He says none of these so-called lockdown sceptics in the mainstream media, including Isabel Oakeshott and Peter Hitchens, exposed with re specific reference to Partygate, a tiny subsection of COVID, uh, that there was uh, there was no dangerous pandemic. And that is the, the dog that didn't bark through all of the pandemic coverage, including by mainstream media skeptics. Ian is asking that perhaps uh, what we're being primed for by the Daily Telegraph and others who've suddenly decided to cheerlead for the lockdown files is that we should get these foibles 
uh, these politicians with their foibles out of politics altogether and just be run by technocrats and have done with it. Yes, okay, thanks, Alex. Now, Debbie, uh, where does that take us? Back to Pro Professor Susan Mitchie. Well, I couldn't resist. And, you know, I just want to remind people that the jabs are still being rolled out. The COVID agenda is still alive. And and for anybody in London, there's going to be a polio uh, jab drive for children after Easter. So when the children go back to school, keep an eye out in London because the vaccination clinics are on their way to a school near you soon. But I just couldn't resist Professor Susan Mickey, otherwise known as Stalin's nanny. Um, of course, she blocked me on Twitter. Uh, but thanks to Alex for letting me know that she's tweet she's not meant to be on Twitter. She she doesn't like Twitter. She was because of a bad experience. She was going to go to LinkedIn. But she appears to still be tweeting and she seems to have done a bit of a turnaround because she's retweeted an article. The UK government's attempt to frighten people into COVID protective behaviours was at odds with its scientific advice. Well, I suggest, uh, Professor Mickey, the advice we were following was yours on, well, I wasn't, but a lot of people were on the um, Spy B team. So, uh, very strange about turn for Susan Mickey. And then moving on, doing a quick whiz around the NHS very quickly. Um, we've been warning for a long time that things are going into short supply on your chemists' uh, shelves. And this time we're looking at Calpol. Now, I don't want to um, alarm anybody so that everyone goes out rushing to get Calpol. But I know that most parents of young children um, will probably know someone that's used Calpol at some point, and it's not just Calpol, it's Lemsip, Gaviscon and Optrex. So those are in a bit of short supply at the moment. So just be be aware of that. And then um, going on to the NHS website, which is just publishing in the last couple of days, that the NHS is treating hundreds of children with gaming disorders. And I didn't even know actually that there was a National Centre for Gaming Disorders, um, which you can see there, NHS Central and Northwest London. So the data's revealed for the first time showing 745 people have been referred for treatment to the UK's only gambling clinic since it opened in October 2019. I believe many of these are our children. And then um, on again on the NHS website, it would appear that uh, NHS patients with rare genetic disorders will be fast-tracked for an earlier diagnosis and specialist care. So hundreds of people, apparently, this is a pioneering new NHS service and it'll, it'll target patients with inherited white matter disorders. Well, that's all very well and good when we've actually got seven, eight, maybe approaching nine million still on the waiting list. Um, and then I saw this lovely Twitter and thank you so much to Elemental Jesus. Um, Dame Abby Roberts tweeted, if there are any media channels which are prevented from fully exposing the global democide unleashed over the last three years, isn't it about effing time? We boycotted these channels rather than pandering to them. And Elemental Jesus um, replied, which is why the UK column has been the only news station I have ever paid attention to since 2008. Much of the stuff they warned about over the year has come true and they are also not afraid to admit and own their mistakes, which are few and nothing in comparison to the BBC. So thank you very much indeed, Elemental Jesus, for that. Okay. Oh, yes, and then we're good. Do you want to go straight on to um, NHS recruitment? Yes. 
Okay, so I just want to just alert people really because you know we're losing nurses. We know we're losing nurses and doctors, um, and plenty of articles. One came up in the in the Guardian just recently about NHS staff saying they've given all that they can give now, and they need that they're, they're just leaving, that leaving in their droves. And then that was followed on by a mail online story to say that the NHS is going to be short of 570,000 nurses, doctors and dentists within 15 years unless ministers urgently fix staffing crisis, plaguing health service leaked document warns. Now, of course, we know that nurses and doctors are going to be a thing of the past soon because robots are going to take a takeover. However, we are still recruiting from Nepal, which um, is a red country. It's a WHO red country, which means that we're not really meant to be taking any nurses from Nepal at all. But we seem to have done a deal. And so we're taking nurses. And if it couldn't get any worse, King's College Hospital in London, um, they're failing at recruiting their staff as well. So rather than try to recruit staff in London, they've teamed up, wait for this, they've teamed up with Jeddah. So there's now a King's College Hospital in Jeddah. And um, the Telegraph ran this story. And I was absolutely astonished because they're actually encouraging doctors and nurses to move to Saudi um, because there's no, well, there's plenty of jobs at King's, but they're saying, you know, go to Saudi, get your training and then come back. So I don't know quite how that works. I'm just shocked that that I saw that um, because quite clearly the rest of the world can see that the NHS is collapsing and it is unique to the to the UK. You know, the NHS is meant to be or known all around the world for being the jewel in the crown. But of course, everyone knows it's collapsed and it's closed. And according to the BBC, pretty much the whole of the country and all of the NHS closed due to COVID-19. So, you know, what, what has been the cost? That's what I wanted to know. I wanted to know what has been the cost um, to the NHS and to the country on COVID. So I found a UK parliament. It's quite an easy graph, and I'm sure Michael helped me out here. But it seems to be that it's around about averaging around about five and a half to six thousand pounds per person that has been spent on COVID-19. 19 measures so that's a lot of money and if you go and look at what your trust has actually spent as well on agency staff to replace the staff that are walking out if you look at what your trust has has um has spent it's horrific you can see there barts 147 million this is on agency staff this is on staff that they're buying in. We've got Medway NHS, 108 million. We've got the Royal Free, my very own hospital down there, at 86 million. But these agency staff, I couldn't believe this next this next slideshot, honestly. Have a look at it. I mean, I, I'm almost speechless. Servants, yachts and Rolex selfies, the lives of NHS agency chiefs. And this is where the money is going to. Recruitment firms such as this agency um, is making an absolute fortune. And this couple, they run this agency and they're just cruising around, enjoying the sun, having a lovely time. But when you actually read the article, which was in The Times, and I'll, I'll just say freeze the screen and have a little read or if, if Mike or, or Brian wants or, or Alex wants to pick up on any of the um, text there. But, you know, they are paying celebrities. They are incentivizing doctors and nurses with holidays, 
donuts, you name it. They're incentivizing staff to work. So spa breaks, even holidays, you know, it's just it's outrageous when you think how much money is being spent on agency staff. So I just wanted to highlight that because I was a little bit <laughs> gobsmacked. OK, um, Debbie, thank you very much for that. Well, I, we, we did have a little clip on the Bank of England to uh, bring in some of the uh, bit of commentary about the money. But um, we also know that you've got an interesting little story about Cornwall and what's been happening with the chief executive of Cornwall Council. So we thought we'd end the news. Um, so take us into that with an eye on the clock, if you will. Absolutely. Um, well, as you, as everybody knows, I live in Cornwall and uh, a very reliable source, and this is alleged, so I can't confirm or deny, has told me that Kate Canally, the CEO of Cornwall Council, is about to resign and she'll be resigning to join a think tank in Westminster. Now, like I say, this is, I've heard this from a very reliable source. I don't know the truth to it. So I tried to make contact with Cornwall Council uh, to their press department. And, um, oh yes, there's just a, a little uh, a slide just to show you the, the board and the Cornwall Council leadership team. And you can see Kate Canally right at the top there, CEO. So anyway, I decided that after I'd heard this leak, if you like, or allegation, rumor, um, that I would try to contact the press department at Cornwall Council, but I couldn't because all their lines were dead. So I decided to send an email. And considering I've had many problems with Cornwall Council, I've never had so much correspondence in 24 hours as I've had. So I've just put a few shots up of the exchange. Now, I don't know if one of you gentlemen wants to read them out or whether you just want people to freeze the screen, but clearly... Um, I was asking of the truth that was in this rumour of Kate Canally leaving and I wasn't given any information because apparently there isn't, isn't, isn't any information. Yet David Thomas, the media relations officer, was clearly asking me where I was, who I was uh, working for. Um, when I asked him for an interview with Kate Canally so that we could, you know, confirm or deny, it's, otherwise it's open to interpretation, um, he didn't really want to put anybody up for an interview. So still at this point, we don't know whether Kate Canally is resigning or not. But if anybody would like to contact Cornwall or if anybody knows anything, please do let us know. Or maybe if Kate Canally's watching, she might like to come and talk to us and let us know, perhaps. Um, yeah, fascinating response because you found it very difficult to talk to a human being inside uh, Cornwall Council when you were making your inquiries. Um, the AI didn't quite cut it, uh, but you couldn't talk to a human being. And then eventually, when the message got through, a very hurried fluster of responses, which suggests that maybe uh, there was something of interest there, but we'll see. But we thought we'd just um, end here with a little clip of the lady herself, who apparently has been very upset at the trouble around her sexuality, but she then appears to be able to it would seem, spend uh, ratepayers' money in order to make a, a little clip including about her sexuality. So let's have a look. In 2005, um, I, uh, I started a new relationship with, with, with what is now my wife. And, um, you know, I changed in the mind's eye of, of, of friends and uh, people that knew me professionally from, you know, um, being being a mum, uh, living with um, my children's father 
into you know now uh, being in a same sex in a same sex relationship and it was really interesting kind of to me around some discrimination that I felt um, uh, through through that through, uh, as, a, as a result of that um, and uh, it was not so much with my gender although of course my sexuality is is linked to that but you know there were some issues um, with the school and um, views that have been expressed around um, foreign exchange trips and needing to so just for the audience to consider what seems so extraordinary about this clip is it's done against a backdrop of Cornwall Council very childish images of course as to what Cornwall actually is but then this is a very personal um, video um, why does the public need to know about this and why does Cornwall Council presumably pay for one of their employees to be able to make these statements we'll leave the audience to reflect on this we're simply making the point that we find it very strange that a lady who was clearly upset at things that happened around her uh, should then make everything more public by this type of video it would appear paid for by Cornwall County Council but we'll leave it up to our audience to uh, make a judgment we're going to have to end there we're going to say thank you very much to um, Alex and Debbie for joining us and a very big thank you to our audience wherever you are in the world uh, I'm going to reflect that uh, the best thing from for me uh, today was that wonderful uh, little um, kind gesture by the lady who stepped up to buy a life membership I think uh, whatever we've reported in the news that's a, a really lovely little story uh, we'll be back in a couple of minutes for some extra Okay, thank you for yeah. joining us. Bye-bye.